The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about big numbers, crunchy deals, and nasty spats. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi, Anthony. So this week, we're going to talk about American banks. They've been the best performers in the stock market since the election of President Donald Trump. But we're going to check in and see how well they've been faring with their results. Also, we're going to turn to Silicon Valley and the latest shenanigans, if we can call it that, coming from Snapchat and its plans for its IPO coming up later this year. We start our show this week, though, by going across the pond, this time not to London, but to Davos in Switzerland. It's the World Economic Forum where the great, the good, the businessmen, the evil people, whoever you want to call them, depending on your particular stripe, are gathering to discuss what happens next in the world. And we've got our very own Peter Tal Larson from our London office. He's gone over to do a bit of skiing in between talking to far too many people, I'm sure. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. How's it going over there? Uh, it's very cold. It's below minus 10 degrees centigrade during the day, and it gets much lower than that at night. There's a lot of people, as usual, wandering around uh, talking. Also, a lot of discussion about the people who aren't here, in particular, any really uh, almost no representatives of the new U.S. administration of President Trump. That's a little bit of a surprise. I suppose it wasn't as if he, he's particularly up to speed on getting all of his cabinet picks sorted out. I think just the very top of the cabinet's been sorted, let alone you know, the 4,000 jobs underneath. So they're a little bit busy. I believe Anthony Scaramucci is there, though, who is uh, going to be one of the president's advisors. Is he basically the only point person there? He's pretty much, yeah, he's pretty much the only person uh, with a sort of direct role in the Trump administration uh, was here. I think he's gone now, but he was here for a day or so, and he was in heavy demand. People were trying to work out what the administration is going to mean for the world and particularly for the people who, the types of people who come to Davos. Remember that Trump pretty much singled out, you know, the elites of Davos as the kind of people that he was campaigning against during the election. So, Peter, as his proxy, did you catch anything that he said? Yes, but the message from Scaramucci was, was, was sort of conciliatory, basically to say, ignore some of the noise and the theater and the Twitter feed uh, from Trump and, uh, you know, focus on the people that he's appointed and sort of focus on the big picture and some of the policies he's going to pursue. I think that's a view that quite a lot of people here, uh, particularly American business executives and bankers, are quite comfortable with. Um, I think you hear that view quite a lot, that actually things are looking up. People from the rest of the world are taking a bit of persuading. Does it sound realistic for that to be the line that Scaramucci and the, the, the American business executives take? And I get that they have to kind of get used to the idea that Trump is their president. They weren't expecting that. But his Twitter feed is having an impact. I mean, just looking at what he said about automakers over the past couple of weeks, for example, it's not as if the Twitter feed is just a bit of fun that he's having. It is having an impact. So what would you suggest to American businessmen and maybe more importantly, foreign businessmen and women who are trying to work out what to make of this new administration that's about to take over in America? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that it's very hard to know. I mean, anybody who tells you that they know what the administration is going to do or what it's going to be allowed to do by Congress or what Trump is thinking on particular topics probably doesn't really is not really in a position to say that as one person said to me they reckon even trump probably doesn't know what he's going to do half the time but i think there's a willingness here particularly uh, as i said amongst the people from the u.s to sort of put a brave face on things i mean when you think about it 
you know, a lot of people here are uh, heavily invested in their companies. They have a lot of stock options. The stock market is up since the election, particularly in the banking sector. Um, you know, valuations have improved a lot. There's an expectation that regulation is going to get rolled back. There's an expectation that corporate taxes are going to get, get reduced. And so people are tending to focus on that as a sign of um, kind of what's to come and maybe paying less attention to the sort of... Uh, the more unpredictable aspects of Trump governance, like the, the rule by Twitter uh, or the saber rattling towards China. Yes, uh, intriguingly, actually, um, that the CFO of Citigroup was talking on their earnings call this week about how, uh, you know, if there are problems with, for example, trade wars or whatever else, then don't worry, we're the middlemen. We sit in the flow. This will be great for our business. So the spin is already coming through. Let's move on to the leader of China. Xi Jinping has also been there the first time that someone from China, China's government has spoken, I believe, at the World Economic Forum. This is the first time the Chinese president, the, the sort of the right. top ruler of China, has come to Davos. Usually the prime minister, who in the times that they have come, the prime minister has come. But um, this was a very big moment. I mean, and, and this is quite a smart maneuver by Xi Jinping, because basically what he did was he took advantage of this vacuum. They knew that because the inauguration was coming up, that it was very unlikely that any senior American representatives of the new administration would be here. There's also some of the Europeans are staying away. Angela Merkel, for example, is not coming. There's kind of a lack of sort of world leaders at Davos. And so for Xi Jinping to come along and give what was a truly remarkable speech coming from the mouth of a Chinese president about a very inclusive speech about the benefits of globalization and the system that we've created and the wealth that it's created and how it needs to be preserved. And it really just captivated the audience here. I mean, they've been waiting for someone to kind of make the positive case for globalization. And amazingly, it was the Chinese president that did it. I'm not quite sure which world I'm living in anymore, actually. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a twilight zone. Right. May's absence and what she's been saying about Brexit is yet another example of, of, of almost the exact opposite of, of what the Chinese are saying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely this feeling that the U.S. and the U.K. have kind of retreated from uh, from, from, from the liberal order, from being the defenders of the liberal order. And, uh, and, and but yes, we have this, this, this vision of, of, of China sort of stepping into the breach. Now, you have to take and bear in mind that China is a very imperfect defender of free markets or liberal uh, movements of capital and goods. You know, to ask any foreign executive who's trying to do business in China uh, or any lawyer who's trying to enforce a contract in China, and they'll tell you that, that things over there are very different. So um, I think we have to take all of this with a, a hefty pinch of salt. But it is truly remarkable when, you know, for example, in the middle of his speech yesterday, Xi Jinping made some comments, some positive comments about climate change and was sort of spontaneously applauded by the audience. I mean, it would have been unthinkable three years ago yeah. that a Chinese president would be able to do that. Absolutely incredible. So I mean, aside from the governmental issues, what else is vying for your attention over there? What are business leaders saying that isn't necessarily attached to the political winds of change? Well, I think that, that is clearly the, the sort of the political uncertainty is the big dominant question. But we also, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the economy, which, you know, the world economy is actually looking up a bit, again, driven again by, by sort of mostly by, by the expectation of higher growth in the US. And that has some downsides. For example, we've seen this, the, the strengthening of the dollar, and that is worrying some people, particularly in emerging markets. Um, but then the rest of it really is, is sort of you know, the ongoing discussions about, you know, sort of some of the, the more persistent weaknesses. People are looking at the Eurozone and wondering where's the growth in the Eurozone going to come from? How is this, you know, the, sort of the, the low growth and, and political unhappiness going to translate into some of the elections that we're seeing 
in the European Union this year. And um, although people have basically stopped worrying about the Chinese economy for the time being, there is still a, a lingering question, which is, you know, can the Chinese economy grow as fast as it's been growing and, and continue to accumulate debt as much as it had with, without having some kind of blow-up or crisis? Right. Okay. Well, uh, Peter, we should let you go. Um, try and warm up. Go get yourself a glass of Glühwein and, and some raclette to keep your hunger at bay. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for coming on. Well, do. Thanks very much. All right, so now we're going to turn to Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and all the other big banks here in the United States. They've been having a great run with their share price, but they've also been announcing results the past couple of days. Anthony, tell us, how are they doing, and does it justify the run-up in the share price? Um, well, first question, they're doing about as well as they always have, which answers the second question, which is no. Um, it doesn't justify the share price. Now, let's not go too far on that one. But reason for the share price going up so much, it depends which bank you're looking at, but most are up around 20%. I think the average of the bank indexes that came off a bit yesterday is about 22 23% since the day before the election. The likes of Goldman Sachs and Bank of America have shot up even more. They were up uh, beyond 30% until a couple of days ago. And look, the main reason, I, mean, we, I looked at this a few weeks ago, the main reason for banks investors being so bullish is not because they expect a great deal more business. I think they're actually being quite clever about that. They're not saying, we'll now suddenly see a raft of extra revenue because Donald Trump's going to change the world. What they're saying is, we're pretty sure there's going to be a tax cut, corporate tax rate cut. And we're pretty sure interest rates are going up. In fact, we've already seen interest rates go up what, 75 basis points, I think it was, in the markets at least, since Trump's election. And the Federal Reserve put up base, uh, interest rates by 25 basis points in December, and there may be more to come. So that's already having a relatively slow effect. We'll see that work through this year. Bank of America, for example, said that in the first quarter of this year, it will earn an extra $600 million on interest income, purely because it takes a bit longer than just a few weeks for it to flow through. But that's all we're seeing. So it's just really interest income rising from interest rate changes and from the corporate tax cut, I, I looked at this and I thought that's really that justifies most of the valuation uptick that we've seen. And I think investors are right to do that because earnings really haven't shown much change at all. And what about the regulatory environment? Are, are investors looking at that and saying, OK, this incoming administration, they might want to start unwinding some of the provisions that they've put on the banks over the past several years? Is that a good thing? Is that being kind of considered? It's certainly being considered. Whether it's a good thing, I think, depends on which side of, of the, the, the political spectrum you are. I think there's, uh, that said, I think even, even some of the framers of the Dodd-Frank Act, Barney Frank included, the 2010 Financial Reform Act, said, look, we do need to tweak some of this. There are certainly things that went, went too far or that where there are unintended consequences or where you have uh, a plethora of rules which may at times contradict each other. I think some cleanup there is good. The trouble is you've got people like Jeb Hensling, who runs the House Financial Services Committee, pushing for a full repeal of uh, Dodd-Frank or at least a wholesale uh, overhaul of a lot of it. And that probably goes far too far. And I think a lot of banks, if we look at what the banks are thinking about, they're probably looking at this thinking, yeah, if this administration is just around for four years, I mean, who knows? But if it's just around for four years and then we go back to Democrats having more control, it may not happen. But if you're a bank executive, you're thinking, is it worth changing too much? I mean, am I really going to go back into a Right, like who wants to be whipsawed, right? Yeah. Because then you, you take a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to figure out what the regulation means for yeah. your business or lack of regulation, what that would mean, trying to unwind everything. And exactly. then you're and right, you're, you're back where you could started maybe four years yeah, you later. You spent a lot of money and a lot of time 
complying with these regulations. As much as you might think, great, we can get rid of some of them, it'd be good for business. And by getting rid of some of them, or at least stopping new regulations, which is what the likes of Brian Moynihan, BVA CEO, is talking about. If we just stop introducing new regulation, we'll know where we stand, we'll have a better sense of what we need to spend. And if we start cutting some of it, then maybe, you know, there'll be a little bit of a drop in, in expenses, which will also be good. But I think if you look at the agenda that the president-elect has, and that Congress has, it's clear to me that Dodd-Frank reform is not at the very top. You've got They're already trying to overhaul Obamacare somehow or other. They want to do corporate tax reform. Um, there's talk about um, you know, border, uh, border tax adjustments so that you can charge more for goods coming in from Mexico and elsewhere. Trump has laid out his priorities. Congress seems to be agreeing with them. I think that, and that's why I don't think you see much if any uh, impact of, of changes and relaxing of regulations showing up in the share price, it's very difficult to know exactly what will change. And even if things do change, like I said, I mean, if you get rid of the Volcker rule, which bans proprietary trading, are you really going to see a lot of banks say, we'll hire a lot more traders? It's not worth it at the moment. Yeah. So let's take a step back. You know, of, of course, the, the, the market's been very uh, good to the banks. But what's the thinking? I, I'm sure you've been listening to the calls. You know, are they concerned about this incoming administration or is it that it's mostly optimism and, and kind of bullishness? Well, there is very, the bankers have taken a, a very obvious line, uh, one or two lines, actually. One is let's not overdo it. Let's not talk too much about it. I don't want to, I want, I don't want to predict what Trump may or may not do. I don't want to be the subject of a tweet. I don't want to be the subject of a tweet, although the, the, the idea of, of an investment bank being a subject of a tweet where Donald Trump says, hey, bring some of those investment banking jobs back to America. I don't, right. I just, I'm not sure that's <laughs> Doesn't quite work, where, But you know what? Who knows? It's, it's upside possible. down world. Yeah, especially if it's the bankers who can uh, help, uh, help him get over his 600 million of debts or whatever he owes to Deutsche Bank and others. So, yeah, so, so most of them are relatively muted. Um, um, they, they may say, I mean, one of them yesterday was saying, I think it was uh, Morgan Stanley's CEO, was saying, look, there are still chances. Of doing, what if there's a trade war? What if there's a, a geopolitical incident? Which doesn't necessarily have to mean Donald Trump started it or was involved. I mean, we've still got Brexit. We've got, um, you know, we've got uh, ructions with Russia right, that may or may not involve. There's involved. a ton of uncertainty. Exactly. Right but most, I, one of the funniest ones actually was, um, uh, I say it was funny just because it was so brazenly uh, fantastic for what a middleman should be saying. The CFO of Citigroup, John Gersbach, said, look, if you have problems like a trade war or um, the, the flow of money has to change because of policies that Trump brings in, then guess what? We're middlemen. I mean, he didn't say middlemen, but basically, look, we're middlemen and we sit in the middle and that will be good for our business. I mean, that's basically what a middleman should be saying, yeah. right? If there are changes, <laughs> we sit at the, we sit in between you all and we should benefit from the flow. Ha ha ha. Right. The rest of you probably suffer a bit. Um, But look, they're really trying not to overdo it. As with most companies, no one wants to be seen attacking the government, especially before it's properly started. And no one, as you said, no one wants to be the subject of a tweet. Yeah, well, uh, (laughs) exactly. Well, all right, Anthony, thank you very much for that. Thank you for that color, as uh, analysts would say. All right, so now for our final segment, we're going to turn to Snapchat and its parent company, Snap. It's getting ready to file for its IPO later this year. We have Rob Siren here, our columnist from New York, to discuss what they're going to do for investors and how they plan to do two classes of stock. So, Rob, there's a catch to this. Why don't you explain what's going on? So, first off, it's, it's going to be probably the most highly anticipated IPO of this year. The company, from reports, should be valued at $25 billion or so. There's lots of demand, and they're taking advantage of that. What they're proposing, at least according to a Wall Street Journal story, is to only sell non-voting stock to investors. So, if you want to buy stock in Snap, you don't get a say in how the company is run. 
And this is permanent. It's not like some of the other companies have had share classes where the insiders get multiple votes, but these things expire after a certain amount of time. Others, you know, companies like Facebook and Alphabet have issued non-voting stock, but that's only after they already have exi- existing voting shares out there. So, th- so this this is something completely different. Then this this isn't just look. We want to make sure that the founders retain a degree of control as they take the company from basically what is almost still a startup down the road to being a much more mature company, where maybe the founder takes less of a role um, and maybe even leaves. This is envisioned to be a permanent non-voting stock for anyone apart from those who already own the power. Exactly. You're appointing a dictator for life. Okay. I, I want to take take a viewpoint here because it seems like they're pushing this, you know, to the extreme. But at the same time, like, you, you kind of sit back and you look at what Facebook is doing and what Alphabet is doing and they're kind of do, they're doing all these tricks and they're like, not tricks, but, okay, listen, we have two classes of stocks. We're going to make it more complicated. We're going to do a third and there's all this kind of rigmarole around it. To me, they're just kind of coming out here and saying, like, look, we're just going to bypass all these steps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're the, the, not going to – we're just going to maintain control. It, that, that's true. And also um, you have to think that these companies, investors really don't have much of a say anyway. Even if the CEO or you know the founders don't have super voting rights – Investors still have very little say in often how these companies are run. Investors willingly see this. You know, take a look at Apple, for instance. Jobs, when he came back, he had very little stake in the company. He had like about 1% or so. And he could run the company however, however he wanted because he was so successful. Investors said, hey, you know, go do what you want. And in other cases, like in Facebook's case, CEOs have such large stakes that even if even if investors do have a vote, it doesn't really mean that much. That can be true, but that doesn't mean that we should then codify this into a, oh, no. um, shareholders get no say at all. I mean, I think what you're describing there, Rob, say, for example, with Apple is a company where investors were willing to cede a degree of control, as they often are as owners in any company, to see how an executive does. And then at some point, they may fight back. It may well be that they're too late. It may well be that what they're doing looks piecemeal or ridiculous in the end because what the damage has already been done by a particular uh, executive or, or, or executive team. But the whole principle of shareholder democracy is that you have one share and one vote. Exactly. So yeah. um, you know, investors will give that up sometimes, and, and you know, rightly so. I mean, you, you don't want as a, as a CEO to be constantly having your investors peering over your shoulder as as backseat drivers on a daily basis. Now, if there are problems, if you do something wrong, investors should be there. But, you know, you, as an investor, you are you are ceding to the management control of the company on a day-to-day basis. So what you shouldn't be doing is ceding control forever. Well, exactly. We, so should, I mean, make, we, should, we should distinguish between ceding control voluntarily and not having any choice at all. So what is, what's Snap or Snapchat offering in return? Um, nothing, really. Uh. Uh, yeah, a chance to invest in a chance to invest in a growing company. A chance to invest in, and it, it it is a very fast growing company. You know, it's growing about the same rate as companies like Facebook were at, at this uh, age. And you have to think that okay, they have a lot of users. They're just starting to attract advertising, and it's going to be a very you know lucrative area for advertising, just because there are so many you know young people, millennials who use it, and advertisers want to reach these people. That said, sure, you know, it, it's an attractive market, but do you want to give up the rights to control that? The point is that, you know, that, that may be wise today. For instance, you know, the, the founder is Ian Spiegel. He's, he's had a good record of, of forecasting what people want. 
but you know, do you want to do this for life? Do you really think in 20 years he's going to, you know, he's going, he's going to have his finger on the pulse of the youth of America? I, I really doubt well, it. Well, may, maybe that's the point. Maybe that the whole reckoning here is that this is a company that, a bit like its messages, isn't going to survive for too long in its current form. I'm not saying it's going to go under, but you know, you do an IPO, you let it build as much as it wants with no control over the management, and then management sells or diversifies or does something else and then that changes the structure i don't know i mean maybe i'm just being too hopeful that at some point there is a a desire on the part of management to say you know what this structure we've set up for now just isn't going to pertain for as long as as the permanency of it seems to be right now maybe investors will push back maybe they will show they're not quite as uh, laid back and, and easy to roll over as, as Snapchat thinks they yeah, are. Yeah, this could be a trial balloon. You know, the company could be you know, floating the idea and seeing how investors react and then react accordingly. What if they, what if they go for it? Will that mean that other companies... And will, 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 will Facebook or Alphabet try and reverse engineer a, a well, there, permanent there has been, screw you to investors? <laughs> <laughs> there has been a ratchet effect. Uh, like I said, in, this isn't the first coming issue non-voting stock. I mean, Google, when they went public with multiple classes of stock, everyone... There was outcry from people saying this is, you know, this it goes against shareholder democracy. You don't have one cla- one vote, one share. And then you had, then they started, you know, then they worried about they were going to lose absolute control. So they started issuing non-voting stock. And then again, there was this hue and cry. And now you're, you've got the same thing because a company is, is issuing this from the get-go. So, you know, the ratchet is still in full effect and, it, it, and you'd expect other companies to follow. All right. Thank you, Rob. We will be following that, too, very closely. Appreciate your time on this. That's our show for this week, which was produced by Bethel Habti and Ross Shoulder. I'd like to thank my co-host, Jen Saber, as well as our guests, Peter Tal Larson and Robert Siren. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave comments. We love that stuff. And tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us.